0: This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And today I'm joined with Sabri Subi, who's the best-selling author of Sell Like Crazy and the founder of King Kong, the online marketing agency. Sabri, thanks for being a guest. No problems. Thanks for having me on. Now, those of you that have no idea who he is it's probably worth just starting with your origin story, you know. So share a bit about where you grew up, what it was like for you, and, you know, were you always pushed into business or or not? So share a bit about the the origin story
1: yeah sure so um i was actually raised in a small little beach town in new south wales called byron bay it's pretty famous now there's a whole bunch of celebrities living there um but i was raised by a single parent mother me and my sister um you know watched my mom hold down three jobs to kind of raise us and you know when i was seven eight years old i wanted to kind of help my mom i got my first job in a health food store grinding up peanut butter for two dollars fifty an hour um and then I realized that I would never be able to earn enough money doing that to really help her. So I started busking at the markets. Um, and that was kind of where I got my little bite of entrepreneurialism, if you would if say it. I was like juggling and playing harmonica at the markets getting and I, I, I made 80 bucks in my first day. And I was like, this is a lot better than $2.50 an hour grinding up peanut butter. Um, then I got my start in sales when I was 17 years old. um, And I've sold, you know, everything all over the world, door to door, face to face, over the phone, one to one and one to many. And that is kind of like that gave me the gateway drug into business, getting like being on the front lines of capitalism, doing sales, you know, flew over to London, lived in London for a bit, lived in America, Um, And then came back to Australia and started my first business. I've run multiple businesses, I've sold businesses, I've run some into the ground. And at all of those different businesses, I've always been tasked with the responsibility of solving the biggest problem that all businesses face. Which is how do we get more customers? Right. Um, and really that's the thing that I have kind of been focusing on and mastering my craft in and solving that problem for lots and lots of different businesses. And that's what led me to the position that I am right now with my business called King Kong, where we're all our whole business is just focused around solving that problem and helping our clients get more clients.
0: The gives the impression that it blends marketing and sales because if you're thinking about like selling but getting clients and customers I feel like there's a bit of a blend between the two because selling is like the one-to-one conversation you you close the sale but then you brought up well we have to get more customers and clients sort of seeing us as well so did, did marketing play into that as well?
1: Yeah, 100%. Like sales is the child of marketing and marketing is just salesmanship multiplied. So for instance, like, you know, I was always on the telephones, on the front lines of capitalism, getting my teeth kicked in, right? Asking strangers for money all day long. And even when I started my business, King Kong, you know, it came to the point where when I started, I did not have any startup capital. So I had to roll up my sleeves and make 150 cold calls per day. Um, basically out there desperately searching for clients. And once I got enough clients in doing that and I had enough money, then I took that same sales message that I was delivering over the telephone to 150 businesses a day. And I started to use that and to put that into ads and to put that into marketing, where instead of calling on 150 businesses a day, I could write ads that would call on 150,000 businesses a day. And that's really the inflection point that made my business explode is taking that same salesman message and just applying it to a different delivery vehicle, whether it's Facebook ads or Google ads or radio ads or whatever that delivery vehicle is, but just using that as a a vehicle to deliver my sales message. So, you know, I don't look at them as two big fragmented things. You know, what I would say to somebody on the telephone is more or less the same kind of message that I would put into my marketing material.
0: It's interesting that you bring up it's a delivery vehicle and there are so many different avenues, isn't there? Everything from social media and there's obviously around a dozen of those out there. Then you've got email and all kinds of other ways and means of spreading your message as well. How many do we need to do? Because there'd be business owners that, Here, that, oh, you focus on one and that's all that you need. And then there are people that say, well, there'll be people that you miss if you only do one or two and you should do all of them. But then you should, you should it, definitely not do all of them. Um, but basically
1: the way that I look at it, it's it's like a table, right? The more legs that you have on that table, the more sturdy that it is. So you never want to build your business as a one-legged table because anything can happen. There's all this stuff in the, in the news right now with Facebook and iOS and Google just announced that they're going to stop doing third-party tracking and all of that kind of stuff. However, right, in saying that, you know, you've only got a hundred units of time. And if you split that up across 10 traffic channels, then you're just, you're not going to be nowhere near as good as if you just focus on two. And the only two that you need to focus on right now is Google and Facebook. There are lots of other, there's lots of other noise out there, TikTok, all these other different delivery vehicles, right? Facebook and Google, they're the only grown-ups in the room right now. And they're the guys that like really occupy the lion's share of attention online if you you, there's no way that you can tap out on those two traffic channels right you really can't even tap out on one you can get crazy scale on one but i don't like just having one because things change all the time and if you're solely relying on facebook as the number one means to get customers and you're building a business and you've got employees and they're relying on you to feed them and feed their family like it's you're putting a lot of all the eggs in that one basket so you know i would say that you need two traffic channels and if one changes you know you can quickly pick up the slack on the other one and then you can find another traffic channel to replace that Um, but you definitely don't want to scatter your time and attention on 10 different things right because you're never going to be able to master two traffic channels if you try to add 10 in there and you're going to get overwhelmed and you're not going to get the results that you want.
0: Does that mean then that it's not really for everybody? Like the the solopreneur is like, okay, we can focus on one or two, but then bigger businesses that maybe have staff to handle their marketing and some of their sales they'd have the ability to to scale. Because your book is sell like crazy, which implies scale. It implies like scaling quite quickly. So is that for everybody? And what advice would you have for businesses at like particular inflection points?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that you really need to look at, you know, the scale that is available on those platforms. There's 2.5 billion users on Facebook. Um, And there's 3.5 billion searches. I think it's every day or every minute on Google, right? It's an insane amount of scale on there. Um, And the thing is, that even the businesses that have like multiple traffic channels like they they then unravels the complexity of tracking and tracking across different platforms and and which attribution models to to learn right so for, for me in in my business like predominantly i rely on on google and facebook right and we do north of 20 million bucks a year in revenue so there's a huge volume of scale to be had there and i i haven't stacked on native advertising or all the other stuff that exists because there's still so much room to scale even on the platforms that i am on right and i think that if you're going to start putting 10 different traffic channels right? You need to have a look at the trade-off for your time, right? If, if the most amount of attention is on Google and Facebook, if you devote another 25% of your attention to focusing on TikTok, TikTok, right? Is that like, is there more upside to be had by focusing that 20% of your time on that channel? Or would you get more upside by focusing more time and really mastering the channels that the most scale operates on?
0: That's an excellent point in terms of where you spend your time? Is it worth spreading yourself out onto multiple different platforms or going bigger on those one or two? Is it, I mean, is that the question? Is that the the conversation that needs to be had of when we're trying to grow and we're trying to scale, we found out that, say, Facebook works, right? As a Sort of to make the conversation a bit better. Let's say Facebook works, right? And we go, right, do we go to Instagram or do we just play bigger on Facebook? Are there advantages of broadening or should we just throw everything into the platform that works at a smaller scale? Yeah, look, I look
1: at Facebook and Instagram as the one platform, because when you're in Facebook ads manager, Instagram placements, It's just a targeting option. It's just a placement option for the ad inventory on Facebook. But yeah, I think that you need to look at, okay, you know, what is, where are we trying to get to, right? How many customers are we trying to get? How many leads are we trying to generate per month? And where are we right now? What are we spending right now? And how do we get to that target? Can we get to that target from the traffic channels that we're operating on right now? Or is that not possible? And do we need to start exploring other avenues? Um, And like I, I have yet to come across a business that is able, that isn't able to hit those targets from utilizing, you know, Facebook and Google. Like you've got YouTube, you've got Instagram, you've got Google's display network, you've got search, you've got, there's so many different placement options on those two platforms. It's ridiculous.
0: What would you have to do then to learn this thing? Because loads of people try to scale, they try to grow, but then I hear the term bootstrapping in the same conversation. And as someone that interviews people like yourself, on a semi-regular basis, you don't say scaling and growth and selling like crazy and the term bootstrapping in the same sentence. So... What would you say to those people that are trying to essentially get to the higher end of the the scale, but then still think that it's possible without really investing in it?
1: Yeah, well, look, I am completely bootstrapped. I started my business with 50 bucks, right? And an old computer that my girlfriend had bought me. And I rolled up my sleeves, put that 50 bucks into a VoIP account and just started dialing, right, to to get clients. So you, you basically get into a position where you reinvest that money that you generate on a bootstrap basis into advertising, right? I believe that advertising is the single best investment known to man right like it's uh, it's it's not uncommon for us to put one dollar into our advertising machine and get eight dollars back out right there are very few like investment vehicles on planet earth that provide you that kind of upside however most businesses they look at advertising as a cost on their PL, and they mostly wear it as a badge of honor that they don't spend money on advertising they're like yeah we don't really advertise like we get all of our customers from word of mouth and it's like all right well then like you're broke or you don't have a business you really just have a hobby because you don't have any way to pay to get customers and that's what you need you need a repeatable predictable scientific process for basically going out there and turning advertising into profit. And if you don't, then you're just operating whatever fate falls in your lap that day of how we're going to get customers. So realistically, like I look at, if you're bootstrapped, you want to basically create a situation where your overheads are non-existent. Like you're just operating from your home, you've got contractors or you're moonlighting, you're doing all the work and you are hoarding all of that money like a squirrel for the winter, right? And they're just all put into an account and you're not allowed to touch that money. That's not your money at all, it's the marketing machine's money. And you keep living like that, right? Where you're just living well beneath your means until you've got enough money put aside that you can start advertising. And then let's just say that you get to a position where you can put $5,000 or $10,000 aside into your marketing fund, right? That stays in a marketing fund. You don't own that money, okay? So then you invest that $10,000 and let's just say that you turn it into $50,000. Then you take that $50,000 And you invest it, right? And you turn it into $500,000 or whatever those numbers look like for your business. And you basically keep feeding the beast. You keep that that wheel going, that feedback loop going, and it gets louder and louder. And then you have more money to invest to get to the scale that you ultimately want to get to. But what I see far too often is business owners treating their trading account like their personal bank account. And they're like, oh, I've got like 50K in the bank account. Let me go buy some stupid shit, right? Or let me go spend this or let me go and do this or let me go and do that. And it's like, no, like that's, that's you You have to make a sacrifice today, right? And do what other people won't do today. So you can live like other people won't live further down the track. Um, and if you want to get to that scale, then you have to invest all of that. You have to be all in.
0: I'm just picturing a squirrel. <laughs> hoarding nuts for hoarding the- all the nuts away for the winter <laughs> so what what's <laughs> what's some of the things that people can do once they start hitting scale because i mean before we get to that what was your what was your personal first this is selling like crazy thing what was yours what was your sort of wow this is really taking off
1: yeah sure great question so when when i launched into like you know the digital marketing space in terms of launching king kong um that was seven years ago 2014 and I, I as i said i didn't have any money right like it was all bootstraps so and at the time to advertise on google it was like 36 bucks a click for most of the keywords that i was going to be bidding on and there was people that were much more established than than me at the time that were deploying huge amounts of money that i didn't have right so i felt like that that wasn't a game that i was able to win at that stage so what i instead uh, what instead of doing that i i intended to do the basically a contrarian angle to the market and i thought well where are my customers and where can i play like how much money do i have to play and i invested the money that i did have funnily enough, into radio ads. And it's based on, you know, the phishing is best where the fewest go. And, you know, radio is the last place that you would imagine that a digital marketer would be marketing, right? But I was shifting that attention from the offline world into the online world. So I was sending them to a sales funnel and I was getting them. And I saved up enough money. I basically put it all. I went all in, put all my chips in and said, let's give this a go. And I ran that and it definitely sold like crazy. Like I was getting snowed under by leads. There was it was it just me in my bedroom at the time and there was too many leads coming in for me to possibly handle. And I was like, okay, I, I, I've got something here. And then I took that money and I re- reinvested it into digital, I had enough cash then. Um, and that was really when I transitioned and went all in on like, you know, the online advertising model.
0: What was the call to action for radio yep. then? Cause you were taking all. And to online, radio seems like there's nothing really that you could really tell them. It's almost like a billboard that, and you're driving. We can't really do anything right now, but when I get chance, I'll I'll be looking for something to take advantage of so what was the like the call to yeah, action great question. Like it
1: was like attention business owners right now there are thousands of people on Google searching for exactly what it is that you sell right and that bang that was the hook that got them um, and then it was like we've it went on with a bit more education we've detailed all of these findings in a brand new free report and you can get that at kingkong.com.au right just sending them straight through to download a free report and then enter into that conversation in an online format and enter into our world. That sounds almost too simple. Things are. People make things very, very, very complicated when they don't need. Like (laughs) the first sign that I know that someone doesn't know what they're doing is when they make everything complicated. And they're like, here's my insanely complex sales funnel. And it's like, great. Like how many customers are you getting per month? Like, where, where, like, how, how are you going with that? Oh, like, you know, we're, we're getting like one customer or two customers a month. And it's like, yeah, because it, everything's too complex. Like you can't track anything, right? So like, you don't need anything like, you know, we've, we've blown up, you know, a business, an aged care business from $4 million to $25 million in 18 months with, two web pages, just a two page, two step funnel. You know, I've taken home builders from zero to $8 million in, you know, seven months with, with one page and like all the way up to, you know, launching mattress companies from zero to $13 million in their first year with basically a two page website. So it it really doesn't need to be this crazy complex thing. Um, you can keep things simple and you can get violent scale.
0: That's definitely worth mentioning because there are a lot of industries out there, business being one of them, whereby, well, whereby they're trying to make it complicated in an attempt to almost convince you that you need someone to help you with it.
1: Yeah, and you know, the most sophisticated people are the people that can take complex ideas and turn them into simple things. That's like, that's just basic, right? It doesn't need to be complex, but they look at the complexity as the way, like you said, to demonstrate their value rather than thinking about their problem that you're trying to solve for that person and solving it in, in, in the fastest possible time that you possibly can, right? It's not about making something complex. It's about like, okay, what is the problem that you're experiencing right now in your business, Michael, that I can help you with? All right, now, This is how I can help you solve that, right? Let's go out there and solve that problem. And I'm going to charge you a pittance to the value that I'm going to create by solving this problem for you.
0: It sounds almost like this is a mistake that a lot of business owners make is they're trying to make it complicated, whether they're doing it on purpose or not. The complexity side does stand out. Are there any other mistakes that you see people make around selling and around trying to well sell like crazy yeah sure i think the biggest thing is ignoring the steps
1: that take place from taking a complete stranger and getting them to pay you money right most people are conducting their business like, you know, we're in the dark ages, like they they go down to the town square and they lay out their blanket and they're like, here is my wares, like here is what I have got to sell you. And then there is a negotiation that takes place back and forward. A deal is kind of secured and then a transaction is made. Right. And that's the way that most people are still conducting their business where, you know, really like selling is seduction. And there is a whole bunch of steps that take place in order to take that person and get them to feel comfortable to buy with you. Right. And it's a, it's a, it's a kind of philosophy that I talk about in my book, which is how to take your prospects from Tinder to Netflix and chill. Right. And it's about like, what is the type of offer that you're making to these people? Like most people are doing the equivalent of walking into a bar and asking someone to marry them they're like just making them straight up (laughs) offers straight out the gate where that's not how it works it's like how are you doing can i buy you a drink maybe there's a first date a second date like there's a whole series of steps that take place and that's the same in business so you the the biggest thing that people want when they're online is information, right? And if you look at the conversion rates online, like for e-commerce, average conversion rate worldwide is 1%. Then on the lead generation side, if you look at the average conversion rates, it's around 4.5%, right? So meaning in the best case scenario, 95% of people that you pay to get to your landing pages are never going to do the thing that you want them to do. And the reason for that is because you're asking for too much of a commitment. They're looking for information. They're in research gathering mode. So instead of swimming against that raging river that is the desires of that marketplace, why don't you just swim with it and give them what they want, which is information. And that's where my whole thing of putting together what I call a high value content offer, which is you wrap a piece of content, whether it's a free report or it's a webinar or it's a training. And that's the thing that you lead with. You lead with value. And that's, that's the equivalent of like, can we go on a date? Let me buy you a coffee. Let me buy you a drink. Let me show you what I got, right? And then you can decide whether or not we want to go on a first date or we want to go through a walk through the botanical gardens or go to an art gallery or whatever your thing is. Right. Um, and, and, And that's the thing that I see. Right. And then if somebody does have their head screwed on, right. And they are doing that. The next biggest mistake that I see is that they don't have any resemblance of what I call a Godfather offer. And that is an offer that is so good. So white hot that your prospects simply can't refuse it. And instead of an irresistible offer, most businesses have a resistible offer. It's very, very easy to resist it. They're like, we've been in business since 1972 and that's why you should do business with us, right? We've got great customer support where it's like, that's not the thing that's going to get you the business. Like you need to have an offer that gets people to stand up in their chair and raise the hairs on the back of their neck and demand for them to pay attention in a world where there is so much noise and so
0: much chaos going on. I think, the, I think the attention piece is also important as well because we can get information at our fingertips. There's so much going on. Everyone's essentially trying to do the same thing, which is get your attention. And you mentioned, <clears throat> you mentioned the, the irresistible offer, which is obviously subjective. What's irresistible to yourself isn't irresistible to me, which stands to reason that these offers need to be tailored somewhat.
1: That, that is a, a great, great point. And it couldn't be any, any truer. So the way that you do that, is another strategy that I've called is called the halo strategy. And it's basically where you go into your market and you go online and you basically camp out inside the mind of your dream buyer to gather Intel, to then pump up your offers and put them into st- like put them on steroids right and the way that you do that is by going you know to forums by going to reddit by reading the amazon reviews by looking at the youtube comment sections and finding out exactly right what the bullseye is of your market and that is that white hot center where you know you're really understanding the questions that is keeping that person up at night tossing and turning unable to sleep And you're able to see what they're searching for on their iPhone at 3am, right, that they're looking for answers to. And it's only once you know exactly what it is that that market wants, what are those hair on fire questions and problems that they're trying to solve. And then your offer needs to be the solution to those pressing problems. And that is how you get an irresistible offer.
0: Is that something that you can actually find out? Because dare I say a question like, what keeps you up at night? You're probably not going to get a whole lot of people jumping at that kind of question. So how, how do you find out the not, the, not the little niggles, not the, it would be nice to solve this, not the, wouldn't it be cool if that would happen? Because loads of people are doing that. How do you get to that one thing that's probably not exactly, might not even be public knowledge?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I can tell you right now that it is public knowledge um, and I can tell you how to find out that burning bullseye, right? So you're right. Like in any market, it's like you've got the outer rings and then as you get closer to the dead center, that is the bullseye, right? And that's the only thing that we're concerned with hitting, right? Because a bullseye is present in every market and it doesn't matter if you hit it with like a, a rubber mallet or a 50 cal bullet dead in the center, You just got to hit that thing. And the way that you find it is by looking at, you'd be surprised at the stuff that people say online, right? It's like, you're like a fly on the wall listening to thousands of conversations. So realistically, what you want to look at when you go to forums and all these places is like the long, lengthy, meaty reviews, right? And you'll be surprised in what people are saying and going into Facebook groups and reading the posts and seeing like people pour their heart out in these things of the problems that they're trying to solve and then you can click over to their profiles and you can see where they live what like and like you know what you can you guess what their ages are and you can kind of put those pieces together. But a, a lot of these people, like they're writing very, very long questions about what they're like in forums. There's lots of back and forth banter. There's people posting in the comment section. There's people saying, hey, I bought this book to solve this problem, but I'm still, it, it was missing this or it really helped me solve this. Um, and you can definitely unequivocally find out exactly. What is motivating your market? And then you don't stop there. Once you've got that and you get the customers, then you continually
0: survey them and you continually look at what they're doing. I hope, I really hope that people listening to this are actually hearing that. You know, the the biggest problems that your customers are struggling with, you can find it. It is out there. You can look, you can... Get that information before you then essentially reflect back and say, I can solve that. I can get that solution for you, which everything we've spoken about up to now sort of leads up to, okay, I'm prepared to pay because the problem is bad enough and the solution is good enough that it's worth paying for. Yeah, because so
1: the question, uh, yeah, like a transaction takes place where value exceeds price, right? So you need to make sure that the value that you're delivering to solve that problem is 10 times more valuable than the price that you're charging. And if you're having problems selling and if there is resistance, to you being able to close deals and get customers and bring buyers into your business. It's because the value that you're communicating is not, uh, it's not equivalent to, you know, it's not much higher than the price that you're asking.
0: That's a good point when you bring up 10 times as well. But one of the, uh, the counters I guess that I've come across anyway is Something that is a bullseye tends to be priceless for these people. It would completely change everything. And if you do enough research, it's not just the problem. It's not just the solution. It's, you know, like losing weight can improve your relationships, can improve your money, can give you better job prospects. There's there's a lot of ripple effect to what it is that you're selling which then means, okay, well, how do I price something that to these people is priceless? And I am the kind of person that would also feel bad charging a lot for it because when you're on a call with them and they break down and they start crying and my head goes, oh my God, I feel so bad about charging for this because they're in a dire situation. The problem is borderline like life-defining and yet you have this problem and you're basing it on 10 times the the value that you're able to bring. What if it is that meaningful? What if it is priceless to these people? So sort of talk about not just how you would price it, it seems very uh, objective, but then go into how do you sell something that is that meaningful to them?
1: Yeah. So first of all, like the price is, it is going to be like a a factor, right? Because you're not just selling in a vacuum. Like if you're operating in a market, there's going to be other people that are also going to be trying to compete for that attention and compete for that customer's dollars. So even if like what you're saying is true, where it's like, it's very difficult to put a price on it the way that free markets work is that somebody has already put a price on it. Right. So there, and that's not to mean that, you know, you sell at the same price as what everybody else is, but that's still to use that as like a litmus test of like what people are paying out there in the marketplace. And in terms about, you know, feeling guilty about charging somebody, you definitely should not feel guilty about that. And the reason for that is people value what they pay for. And I have seen this countless times. I've seen it where I've tried to give something away to a friend or a loved one that is something that is of so much value. And because they have not paid for it, they do not value it. And if they do not value it, then they do not execute it and they never get the outcome that they want in the first place. So by not charging a fair price for it, you're actually doing your clients a disservice because they're not going to get the result that it is that they want. And in business, you get paid for solving people's problems, right? So if you really want to help drive that transformation, you need to put them into a position where they need to take action based on their investment that they've made in this. And as hard as it can be as someone's emotional or they're in a rough spot, you need to keep in your mind that the money that you're charging is going to keep that person accountable to give them the transformation that they're seeking.
0: That's a very good point because there are loads of people, I'm sure you've experienced it as well, millions of people downloading free courses, free guides, keep this, free that. And the result tends to match their level of commitment. You know, when I, when I was growing up, it was always you get what you pay for or, <clears throat> or like, you know, if it's cheap, then it might not be good. But then if it's expensive, there's that sort of perception thing, right? Very often, we don't realize the cost of things until someone puts a price on it. You know, there's, there's so much out there that is free and we don't value. I heard once that those that, pay, pay attention. And you mentioned accountability, which is important to to sort of reiterate for people, because money is actually a very, very strong motivator. And if you think about when when I've ever bought something that was expensive, or sort of high market, I had this voice in the back of my mind that was, well, I've got to get my money's worth. I'm not sure if you've ever had that sort of thrown around in conversations either, where they go, well, I've paid for it, so I've got to get my money's worth. And that instantly amps them up. It instantly motivates them and convinces them to do things that they wouldn't do if they hadn't paid for it, because your money's worth could be zero, right? So getting your money's worth, you don't have to actually do anything, to get your money's worth, but if you've paid a lot for it and there's a high level of commitment and the result's quite big that they've promised that you'll be able to get if you invest in this thing, it's it's almost like all the stars align and all the ducks are in a row if the price matches the result and the level of commitment and accountability that they need in order to get the result. It's almost like none of that happens if you don't actually invest anything in it to begin with.
1: Yeah, 100%. Like, you know, if, if you've got skin in the game and you've got money, like the more, the more money that you've got in it, the more skin in the game that you've got to actually be committed to get the result, right? Because depending on what it is that you're offering, like, It's not going to be like, you know, a silver bullet for someone like you brought up the weight loss thing, right? If you're a personal trainer and you're signing somebody up, I don't know, for a 3000 pound package over 90 days or whatever that looks like, right, then they've got 3000 pounds in it. Like they got to make, they got to get a result, right? They've got to do the work because they're not going to want to feel like waking up at 5am and coming to a workout. And, and, and leaving everything in the gym and going hard on it. But if there's that 3,000 pounds, you can bet your bottom dollar that's going to be more of a motivator and it's going to be more of a driver for them to actually get the result. Now, let's say that you charged them 20 pounds. They don't have as much skin in the game, right? Oh, it's cold out this morning. Like it's raining, like my gym stuff's in the wash. Like maybe I'll just skip today. And then skipping today turns into skipping a week. And then they never get the result that they want, right? Mm -hmm. So it's definitely you have to look at having a price that is ultimately going to be used to pull that person to the result that it is that they want to get.
0: Have you ever increased the price of something and then actually sold more? And the reason why I ask is because if we're talking transformations for people, if we're talking selling something that solves a a burning problem for people, while you were saying that my brain went, well, if it's cheap, people won't trust it. If it's cheap, people will think like they're not very good or they've, they've not got the experience. Like sometimes if the price doesn't match what the result is, I don't know about you, uh, Sabri, but I'd be pretty sceptical. I don't know about you. If it was like body transformation for a fiver, I'd be like, well, mm, I'd question that. I'd question whether you were actually good enough at getting said result. But then if it was a bit more expensive, I'd go, okay, yeah, that's actually a bit more reasonable even if it's more expensive. So have you ever got any, have you got any stories around this whereby you've actually increased sales or increased the level of trust or something in a company by increasing the prices? Yeah, that's the first thing that I tell all of my clients is straight away to double
1: their prices right? And that, and and I literally say double your prices. And the reason that is that most people don't even factor the biggest cost um, in the business, which is customer acquisition cost. And I'm always met with a ridiculous amount of resistance from people like, no, 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 no. I can't increase my prices. Like, this is what we sell at. This is what it is. (laughs) And I'm like, just just double them. Just double them, report back to base. Let me know how you go. Um, And I think of one of my clients, um, who, who sells Pilates teacher training, right? Education around that space. He doubled his prices and it did not reduce the amount of volume that he was selling, right? So Im- Im- immediately, it's just a huge, huge boost in profit. And then he doubled his prices again. <laughs> Still no resistance, right? right. So, so like a lot of the time when people price their products, They they do it based on how many hours, right, it takes for them to deliver that work or how much the raw materials cost. And then they give a markup to whatever that component is and that's how they assign the value in it. They don't do value-based pricing. They don't have a look at what is the transformation that I am offering here, right? And when people come and pay you, if you're a real master at what you do, right, they're not paying you for the 15 minutes or the 30 minutes that it takes for the dentist to do a filling. They're paying for the 10 years it took them to be able to do that job in 30 minutes, right? And people don't understand that. It's like, you know, if you're like an engineer and you're, you know, your client is like a production company and, the machinery is broken in their manufacturing plant. And every single hour that machinery is not up and running, they're losing a million dollars an hour, right? And they've had all these engineers come in and try to fix it. And then no one can fix it. These guys are losing millions and millions of dollars a day. And you come in and you know exactly where to put the part on that machine. And you fix their problem in 15 minutes and you charge $1 million to do that. That is absolutely worth it right? They're not paying for the 15 minutes. They're paying for the 15 years that it took you to master your craft and know how to solve that problem in 15 minutes.
0: That's amazing. When you, when you shared that story, one that literally came into my head was, uh, it was about um, Picasso was in a restaurant, right? And he was doodling on a napkin. And the woman that was serving the waitress went, well, that looks really good. How much much would that be if you were to sell it to me? And he goes, oh, probably around $30,000. And her face dropped, right? And she was like, oh my God, you just did it then. It took you like five minutes. And Picasso would turn around and go, no, it took me 30 years to be able to draw that well in 30 minutes. And if you think about the engineer example that you gave, you know, like the amount of money that you're losing by not running the machine, running combined with the time that you're saving combined with somebody else that might take longer to do it. Cause I know engineers can be quite particular about time and things being done really well. Um, that's totally worth it. But people don't think like that, do they? People don't think in the way that that we're explaining and it's very difficult to convey that message to people when they don't think a particular way. So how should or how would you advise people start to think or start to try to think about this? The whole conversation that we've had so far is kind of mute if you don't think you can do this. If you don't think you can think this way, what advice would you have to someone that's kind of mentally stuck and can't wrap their head around what we're talking about?
1: Yeah, look, most people, like most salespeople, they they default to the easiest thing, which is to pull their pants down on price, right? When when they're in a sales conversation and they're finding it hard to, to convert that person into a client, their first port of call is let me just pull my pants down on price because that's going to build the value and what it is that I'm offering. No. That is the easy road, right? You need to be able to become better at articulating the value that it is that you're going to provide that person. And that all comes down to being able to know what that market wants and how, how big of a pressing problem this is to them and simply asking them on a scale of one to 10, how important is this for you to solve right now? What will this mean for you if we can solve this? How long have you been trying to solve this? What would your life look like if we could help you solve that, right? Okay, excellent. I can help you solve that. This is what it's going to cost. Wow, it's a lot of money. Is it really a lot of money? How much value would you assign to solving that problem? Because you just told me that it's a 10 out of 10 level of importance to you. And you've been trying to get there for three years, for 10 years, right? It's cost you a lot to get there. So what's the opportunity cost for you to wait another three years? Right? I'm not cheap, but I'm the cheapest in my market. What do you mean by that? Right? Well, the person who's the most expensive, who is the person whose strategies don't work. Right? So if you were able to get this result guaranteed for the amount of money that I'm charging... Would that be a good investment for you? Right? And that's the dialogue that needs to take place.
0: I find it almost fascinating hearing you bring that up. And I instantly thought to myself, that's probably like this sales conversation that needs to be had. But so few people don't quite get there. Let me have this conversation inside their own head that goes, oh, we'll we'll just stay, we'll stay in a nice and, and comfortable part over here and we won't talk about the money side. We'll just agree. If you say no, we'll just agree. And they never have the money conversation after the kind of reveal, if you will. After they've right. showed what the price is, they have a difficult time negotiating or explaining where the the sort of not where the price comes from but where the value is in that investment and I like the way that you've described it there so those of you that are listening hopefully you're taking notes and writing all these down because I think that particularly when you said like if it's costing you a lot to not solve this trying to solve it or half solving it, it, trying to think of the right analogy, it's like paying for your house and then going on holiday that you hated because you're paying for the holiday that you hated while you're paying for the house. So if it's a solution that you didn't like, you're paying for that while also the opportunity that you've now lost to actually solve it. So you actually don't just not save time, you actually waste time and you actually pay for something that doesn't work. So this is why this is also why people don't buy a lot because they're skeptical, they're not sure if they can actually get the result. So this could be the voice that's in the mind of the person you're trying to sell to. If I'm not quite convinced, that's what could happen. They do something that they don't get the result and they've wasted time and the money on paying that thing, but also how much it's costing them to not get the problem solved. So how do you how do you balance that? How do you not convince, but how do you display or communicate that you're actually capable of stopping that, breaking that cycle? solving it and giving them the confidence in you to be able to do that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so that's what it comes down to having a godfather offer. Like there is, there is risk present in every transaction and most businesses try to burden that risk on the prospects, right? Um, where a godfather offer is to basically take that risk and guarantee the result right, of what it is that you have so that you are then burdening all of the risk in that transaction, right? And when you do that, you're able to convert lots of people into customers and you've got skin in the game because then you need to deliver the result that it is that you're promising. Um, and that's the, like a compelling offer is infinitely more powerful than a convincing argument. And you don't want to find yourself at the end of a sales conversation trying to have a convincing argument.
0: That's a very interesting um, interesting thought. Anyway, if you're having to argue it or if you're having to convince them or you feel it getting a bit, I suppose, heated, for want of a better expression, um, you should probably do more work beforehand. Based on what we're talking about and the conversation that we're having, that should never really happen. It should never really get to that point. But what, what does it take for it not to get there? Is it just the offer? And then you burden some of the risk and you have skin in the game, whether it's through guarantees or you know, whatever the case is, how would you suggest that balance? Because from the person being sold to, there's a lot of risk involved. But then how do you convey that there's risk for yourself? As, as the seller
1: we're, we're going to be partners in this deal right so how committed are you you're a level 10 out of 10 committed all right so am i and i'm willing to guarantee you the result right i'm willing to have skin in the game and guaranteed you to get to that outcome but this isn't some magic spot on the genie's belly to rub that's going to make money magically fall from the sky or it's not some like silver bullet or magic bean that you can take that's going to make you lose the weight like you're going to have to do the work and my guarantee to you is if you do the work you will lose x amount of weight you will get in x shape in time frame otherwise i will give you your investment back
0: does that sound fair i like how the conversations go from like hey, we've almost gone from like an interview style at the beginning to now like, okay, Sabri's trying to sell me something here. We've gone down the road of like, if I wanted something, he's 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 telling me like, I almost want to say yeah to something that I'm not even buying. This is weird, but I like it. I like the, I like the way the conversation shifted a bit. Like, okay, how, how would you do it, Sabri? And you've gone, right, this is what I would do, right? I would yeah. do that. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said for that. I think particularly if people are skeptical, if people are struggling, there's only so much you can do before you have to say, look, people do actually pay for results. And just going off what you've said there, there's an element of you've also got to be good at what it is that you do. Otherwise, people shouldn't really pay you. Is that like... A fair assessment. Like we're in the age of experts, we're in the age of influencers, we're in the age of people can communicate value and come across as an expert. But how do you balance that with okay, well, we should only really be buying from experts and you should know yourself if you are what? Like how do you how do you look at the industry? How do you see the whole concept of you've got to be able to guarantee results, which means you've got to be good before you can actually start to sell something. Because if you're not good enough to get the results as the service-based or product-based business or company, there's a lot that you probably need to unpack with that before you actually start to sell something.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a very long answer that I could give to that. But the way that like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try to tell it succinctly is that you need to be a master at your craft, right? You just do. You need to know 100% that you are the best solution for that person, right? And if they chose to not buy off you, you would be doing them a disservice because they would go to somebody else that would not be able to give them the result that you would be able to give them, right? and you don't start a master right everybody like starts somewhere every oh, like all the best chefs in the world started scrubbing the potatoes julieting the carrots being the dish pig taking out the rubbish right and you graduate through time and investment and sacrifice to get to a place where you are a master right and you can charge $500 for a digger station or the, or, or the chef's menu, right? That, takes, that, that, that mastery takes time. So you don't start there. And you need to start with that equilibrium of the market, which is, you know, is there more demand or is there more supply? And in the beginning, there's going to be way more supply of your time and your services than there is demand. So you have to charge in proportion to what that is. And then as you get better and you market more, then the whole game is to basically get the demand to far out the supply. And that's just basic economics and that's where the prices increase.
0: So that implies then that if people follow what you've outlined in your book, if people, because I've, I've read bits of it and it does come across as very step-by-step. Step. It is if you do it, this is the result that you will get, which speaks to, it actually speaks to the whole conversation of, I guarantee the results. It's like a book that should have a guarantee label on it almost. Um, but what I would say then is when the demand does start to increase, this sort of alludes to what you said before of when things do start to grow when things do start to scale, you with your previous sort of, let's call them antics around business, when things did start to take off for you, you mentioned that you got swamped with clients and there was too much going on and you got overwhelmed with everything. So if people follow your book, if people listen to the interview and get a lot from this, what steps did you take and what steps you sort of, blend them together like what did you do and what would you advise people do if you take action on your book and things do start to grow how do we handle that
1: yeah like you you basically the the short answer is you need to hire a team right you you know the 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 sole responsibility of a founder is to make the cash register ring and to be focusing on bringing customers in and then having a big picture and thinking about where it is that you're trying to sail the boat right and where it is that you're trying to get to and in order to do that you need money right capital it's a thing that puts grease on the wheels and you can't hire a team you can't do any of these things unless you sell like crazy. That's the whole thing. Nothing happens until something is sold. And, you know, it's like the biggest problem that I see is that not people get swamped under. It's that that they don't have any customers. And that's the number one reason why businesses fail is because they're undercapitalized. And the reason that they're undercapitalized is because they can't ring the, the cash register in high enough volumes with fat enough margins to sustain their business and to go out there and hire a team, right? In the beginning, I was selling by day, working by night, 18-hour days, busting my ass off to get myself in a place that I could then afford to hire a team and to bring people into the business.
0: I love how you're going. Yeah, just short and sweet, Mike. You just got to hire people to do do stuff. (laughs) It's it's almost... It's almost like when, when you get to a point where you can't do it yourself, you don't really have a whole lot of choice, do you? You haven't got a lot. Even if you use all the software in the world, eventually even that has a ceiling. Eventually- Yeah,
1: time is linear, right? It's a linear thing. There's 24 hours in a day. You're not getting more than that. So you, how are you going to deploy that time? The only way that you can get more of it is to buy it. And that's what you're doing when you hire team members. You're buying time.
0: I think that <laughs> that should really be slotted somewhere like near the beginning. Just like, look, if you do this and eventually you will and you will grow and you will scale, you're going to get to a point where you don't have a choice. You just have to hire out. You just have to take some of the profit and duplicate yourself. That's kind of the impression that I got. It was was very well put. I'm sort of sat watching, listening, going, oh, so there isn't any more than that then. And I I think that at a certain point you could probably get away from it, but everyone hits that point where I just need somebody else to take this off my hands. So I could do more of the stuff that's a bit more important in the growth of the business.
1: Definitely, that's like you can you I like I, I'm not about making simplistic things complex.
0: So with that said, then people really do need to get a hold of this book. So Sabri, where can people go to get sell like crazy?
1: Yeah, they can go to sell like crazy Um, And for your listeners, we're giving a a copy away for free. Um, All that we do is just ask that you help us out with the shipping and handling, and we will send that thing anywhere in the world. Um, And really, like, the book is a step-by-step process. Like, it's my eight-phase selling system. It's not some thin book. Like it's, it's the real deal. It's thick. It's, it, it's meaty. It's not some thinly veiled sales pitch. You can literally take this information and you can go blow up your business. Um, and there's no ulterior motive to it.
0: Thanks for sharing that. That you that all listening. You can get it for free All you've got to do is pay shipping because every country has their own shipping costs. I'm sure. Uh, so yeah, Sabri it's been great to chat. Amazing to have you on. And I look forward to keeping in touch. No problems. Thanks so, so much for having me on.